Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thank you so much for joining me. You can check out all my writing these days at grantwall.com. Promise it'll be good stuff, free posts, paid posts, but check it out. In our first segment today, Chris Whittingham and I will talk about global soccer news. The second segment will be my interview with Walker Zimmerman of Nashville SC and the U.S. men's national team. It's a really good one, so check it out. And in the third segment, we'll talk about domestic soccer in its different forms. Let's bring in Chris Whittingham. How are you, Chris? Doing all right. Uh, Sunday in football was absolutely insane. I completely <laughs> forgot that there was a Derby d'Italia. I, I didn't even watch it because, I mean, you have the NFL going. I'm a big F1 guy. There was the American Grand Prix today. I mean, my goodness, what a day of sports and football. and Crazy. I, it was pretty great with all the different big rivalry games going on in soccer. Um, you had Man United-Liverpool. You had Barcelona-Real Madrid. You had Inter-Juventus. You also just had some good games, you know, like Roma-Napoli, um, you know, others, Atletico Madrid-Real Sociedad. So we're not even talking yet about domestic stuff over the weekend, which was pretty interesting too. But let's start with Manchester United nil, Liverpool 5, which is kind of painful just to read. Um, and the big question coming out of this after such a just miserable Manchester United performance and just terrific stuff from Liverpool in this game, is Ole out? Well, I have been someone who judges a lot how bad they start matches, how frequently they're 2-0 down. I think I ended up looking up after our podcast on Wednesday. I found last year Manchester United would have finished 13th if games ended at halftime. And mm -hmm. that just shows how often they come out and don't look like they, like they have a plan and how often they, are, they seem to be better in situations in which they're trying to make comebacks and throw attackers on and all of a sudden just their sheer force of talent is enough to win them, win them games. But the way that they've conceded goals recently would lead you to four against Leicester, two to Atalanta, five today to Liverpool. I don't think they necessarily have bad defenders. I think they have a bad plan defensively. And you saw, it seemed like Liverpool had a great idea of how to, in particular, draw Harry Maguire out of position. For the Naby Keita, I think the Naby Keita goal is the perfect encapsulation of what went wrong for Manchester United, what is going wrong. It's a constant trying to cover for errors, right? That ball starts all the way back at the goalkeeper with Allison, And it's just a completely half-hearted press that doesn't make any sense. And two passes later, you have Mo Salah running in on goal, slips a perfect pass into Keita. He had just run beyond Harry Maguire, who's coming across from left center back to the right side of the field to try and close him down. They're just completely disorganized. And so if that's what this season is going to be, for Manchester United, I think you have to move on now. I think you have to get a top manager now. There's two top managers available, in my opinion. Zinedine Zidane, Antonio Conte. You give them both calls and try and salvage the season because they just have too much talent to not win anything. It's absolutely crazy. We're recording this at right around 5.30 p.m. Eastern on Sunday. If they're going to make a move, I don't expect to see an announcement officially until Monday morning UK time. That's what they've done in the past with changes that they've made. I don't know if they're actually going to make that change. I think they should because it's very clear now. Even midweek, they won United against Atalanta, but the performance was terrible. The performance was awful, and you can't just count on your talent 
and your individual people to come through every game. It's not going to work. And when you do face a team that's well coached and is a team like Liverpool playing very well these days, Mohamed Salah in the best form of his career, you're going to get shredded at home. And that's exactly what happened here. I mean, like this is a lot of it on the coach and an Ole is just, I'm sure a very nice man, but he's not an elite coach. And it's a little ridiculous that United hasn't had an elite coach for as much money as they spent. You would think if you're like going to spend so much money on players, okay, get a top coach to come in and and get them playing together. And I, I think also about Jurgen Klopp. Liverpool hasn't bought anybody on the transfer market to any real extent over the last couple of transfer windows. Jurgen Klopp may be the best coach in the world at making his current players better. And this comes up a lot. Jose Mourinho this week got destroyed in Europa League by Bodo Glimt. Europa Conference one. League. Ah, sorry. Yeah, I, I don't even, it's, it, it's, it's miserable. Thank you. Um, and, and, and I'm so tired of coaches like Mourinho saying, I have bad players. Make them better. Do what Klopp does. You don't hear Klopp complaining about Liverpool not buying as many players in the transfer market as his top competitors are. And look at what Liverpool's doing. Just make your players better. Make them a team. Give them chemistry. Give them a plan. That's what Klopp does. And that's why Klopp is an elite coach. It's why Manchester United wanted to hire Klopp a few years ago. And they failed. He didn't want to go. So I'm sort of frustrated. I'm annoyed at Manchester United because they're capable of making the right decisions and just haven't done it. Well, I, I do think finding that guy is more difficult than it would appear, right? They got Louis van Gaal off the back of uh, an incredible World Cup with the Dutch national team. They got Jose Mourinho off the back of, yeah, a, a Chelsea tenure that spiraled towards the end, but you can still convince yourself that they were going to head on the right path with Jose Mourinho because of his background. He always won at every club that he went to, and he won a Europa League and a Carabao Cup, but realistically didn't achieve at that level. But you keep trying. You keep you go again, and yeah, you bring in Ole Gunnar Solskjaer because it made sense for the temporary moment. He did really well. He got the team into the quarterfinal of the Champions League, got them back up towards the top four. But if you want to let it ride, at a certain point you have to decide... It's not enough. I mean, Pep Guardiola did not have a CV before he took over at Barcelona. He was the Barcelona reserves team manager. But then he proves to you that he's destined for greatness. Ole has not done that to enough of a degree. Finishing second in the, in the league last year was an impressive mark, but it just has not been enough from him, and you see enough errors. And I actually, I want to play some audio here from Paul Scholes, uh, the former Manchester United midfielder, who was on BT in midweek. And actually, this is after a win. This is after they come back from 2-0 down. This is on the Champions League coverage in the UK. And he's asked, is that a victory worth celebrating? I looked at that game thinking about Liverpool on Sunday. Maybe it's the wrong thing to do. Thinking about Manchester City. Because I thought in that... In that first half, United were all over the place. They were disjointed. They had the two midfield players playing on their own. Now, if you do that against Manchester City or Liverpool, half-time, it'll be 3 or 4 nil. You'll be out of the game. You're not coming back. And yet, it's great watching, seeing the excitement and seeing the United way, all the smiles on their face, all the attacking, all the goals, all the shooting, all the crosses. It's brilliant. I know that. But that first half just stuck with me. 
But when you've only won one in five, to win in that manner with, with that atmosphere and that reaction, I mean, look at, you know, Cristiano... When, when you say win in that manner, they've come back, come yeah, back from two... Yeah. Great, great spirit, yeah, great fighting spirit. They conceded still so many chances. Now, if you're playing against quality players... There's no way you're winning that game. Not a chance you're winning that game. And now everyone will get a little bit carried away with this euphoria. Now, will he play that way on Sunday against Liverpool? It, it was that brilliant. It was that good. Everyone's smiling. Everyone's happy. Go and do that on Sunday against Liverpool. See what happens. Great analysis is when you can forecast stuff, mm-hmm. which is what he's done. And almost when you, don't let, when you don't let the results get in the way. It's hard after Cristiano Ronaldo scores a late second half winner to not just kind of ride the wave of the result. The result, Manchester United won. They came from behind. They're on their way. Like, he kind of recognized, oh, no, this performance has so many warning signs that if they do this again, they're going to get hammered, and they duly did. I do want to talk about Liverpool here a little Mm. bit, though, because I feel like they played a terrific game here from the start. It's not just that Salah's in amazing form. Like... Everyone else on that team is playing well right now. Um, Firmino, very good in this game. Defensively solid. I already talked a little bit about Klopp just making players better. And I still think, we talked about this midweek a little bit, I think occasionally defensively I'm a little concerned about Liverpool. Not today. But when it comes to the title race at large, Man United is not going to win the title, okay? Maybe we thought they had a chance early in the season, there's three teams that have a chance to win the title. Liverpool, Chelsea, Man City. And as of right now, there's not a lot to separate them. I would just say defensively, I don't think overall Liverpool has been quite as good as Chelsea or City. And actually, I think City and Chelsea are on the same goal difference, or they conceded the same amount of goals, Mm -hmm. like three goals in the league all season. So... I'm a little surprised that City's been as good defensively as they have been. If I have to pick one team out of those three to be the best defensively over the course of the season, I actually think Thomas Tuchel's Chelsea would be the one I would predict uh, based on what we've seen already. But I think it's going to be those three teams. And I guess for Liverpool, what's the scenario in which you could see them winning the league? Well, I think it's who beats up the most on the non-big teams, right? I mean, although actually, I think at this point, I think it is just the three teams that are the big team. Like, you wouldn't consider Spurs on like, oh, you know, away at Spurs. No, that's not the same as away at Manchester City. Away at Manchester United is not the same as away at Chelsea. Like, it's really... So who takes advantage of those other games? And I actually think the, the scenario in which Liverpool wins the league is they blitz those teams, they score three and four every time they play like they did at Watford, right? Those are the games that determine the league every year. But really, the way in which Liverpool win the league is they're, they're most often hit two or three goals against those teams, and they just regularly reel off wins, which I think they can do. I think if you look at the overall title picture, it is those three teams, I agree. Chelsea is strongest defensively. Although, I mean, I'm about to make an argument that they're worst of the three defensively, or you know, in the attack, after scoring seven this weekend, albeit against a very hapless <laughs> Norwich. Um, but I think 
Chelsea best defensively, Liverpool best attacking, and City the best. Com- I think they're the the more the most balanced of the group. I don't think you can separate them. I think if you're looking at title odds, it's like 33.3 percent for all three of those teams. I think it's going to be really exciting to follow. Uh, I do want to move on because it was a, just a crazy weekend to El Clasico, Real Madrid two at Barcelona one. Four straight wins in El Clasico for Real Madrid for the first time since 1965. And look, the question with Barcelona is how much is the mismanagement of the club and the billion-dollar debt going to affect things and losing Lionel Messi? Is this a blip? Is this going to be just a long, painful, multi-year situation? And Look, I mean, Barcelona's nowhere, like, they're barely in the top half of La Liga. They're not likely to advance from their Champions League group. Real Madrid deserved to win this game. It's it's kind of depressing, but the, the wild thing is, if Serginio Dest converts his sitter in the first half, this is a completely different game. Completely agree. I actually, I, I'm, I'm a little bit more positive on Barcelona coming out of this. I think that they were pretty decent today, but they get into the final third, and they I just don't think that you look at Ansu Fati as good as he's been at times and say, that guy can consistently carry Barcelona. I don't look at Memphis and say, that guy can consistently carry Barcelona, nor Dest, nor really any... I mean, you know, Coutinho on his day can, but that's been so infrequently. Sergio Aguero came on and scored. They just don't have that guy, and Messi has so often been that guy um, that I think they're going to have to go into the transfer market and figure out a way to, with Band-Aids you know, stick that together. Some kind of guy that can lead their attack. But I thought they played pretty well today. I thought that Real Madrid didn't really offer a ton other than the two goals that they scored. Um, Serginho Dest, by the way, does kind of make amends. It was kind of amazing how much he is the central figure in this game. And in some ways, I mean, this is harsh on Dest because he was brought in to be a right back. But I think if you're looking at Barcelona and telling, their, you know, the Barcelona story... Relying upon Serginho Dest to play in a front three in a position that used to be occupied by Neymar, it's a little bit of a drop-off. It's a signal of where Barcelona is that that chance falls to Dest. Now, he still should put it away because he's got the skill and the quality. Like He's still a high-level footballer, and that was a bad, bad miss at a big moment. And you, and you knew. I've watched enough El Clasicos to know that the Real Madrid goal was coming very quickly thereafter. You just knew. And so that was a devastating miss and I imagine he'll come in for a lot of criticism. And I'll be curious, and we're going to talk to Walker Zimmerman later on in the pod, and Des kind of seems like he's a little bit of a guy who's got so much confidence that it's not going to bother him, but it did seem like it bothered him in the game. And Ronald Koeman at halftime moved him back to right back, and I think that was the right decision because that's a big moment in a Clasico, first time in front of a full Camp Nou, to not score that goal, and he did kind of recede into a shell. Now, fair play to him. He grew within the game and got an assist for a you know a consolation goal, but that was a really big moment, and I'll be curious how he grows from that. You know, I actually thought in the second half when, he, when Dest got moved back to right back, he did a semi-solid job on Vini Jr., you know, who's been in terrific form for Real Madrid, and still had a situation where Dest cut in and got a good shot off and hit it over the bar, similar to the goal that he had for the U.S. against Costa Rica. He's great at that cutting in move and getting a shot off. Has the assist on the goal. Um, And so overall, I don't think he was terrible in this game. You know, he had the one big miss. 
And it's very frustrating. You know, I thought Memphis was brutal in this game. Yeah. And that was sort of encapsulated in their late opportunity for the equalizer when he should have shot the ball and didn't. The ball ends up going in, you know, into the box and, and PK is calling for a penalty for some reason because there's not a penalty there. And PK sitting there complaining on the ground. Real Madrid goes the other way and scores what ends up being the game winner. Uh, through Lucas Vasquez. And I'd be really frustrated if I was a Barcelona fan to see how that played out there because they were doing a lot of things to create chances. And you're right, Real Madrid was countering a lot in this game. That was basically their strategy. And they counter well. And I don't think Barcelona necessarily defends the counter all that well, as we saw on David Alaba's goal. Give some props to David Alaba. Yeah. Like, how often do you ever see a center back win the ball in his own end to start things and then just keep on going and finish majestically like he did. You know, usually when center backs score, it's out of a set piece or it's on some shot from distance out of possession. And he just ran on the counter and it, it was really cool to see. I like I love seeing sort of rare goals like that, but if that's David Alaba's, you know, first big moment, with Real Madrid, people are going to forget Sergio Ramos pretty quickly. Yeah, hell of a way to announce himself. And, like, he's not, in my view, I mean, you say, like, uh, that's a center back. He's not a center back. Like, we know we've seen him play from his <laughs> national team as a central midfielder. He's been a free kick taker because he's so good with his left foot. Like, once I saw he's got that kind of space on his left foot, it felt like good night. It did not feel like, you know, like it, it was going to be struck into the corner and Ter Stegen was not going to have a, sh- a chance. But you're right in terms of the defending the counterattack aspect of it, and I hate how I'm about to sound, but they kind of need to be more cynical on those on those counterattacks because I forget who it was that got the ball into Alaba. It might have been Vinicius. But there was a moment in which Mingueza comes out to try and close him down and doesn't really get stuck in. Like, and I, I again, I hate how I'm sounding, but you kind of have to kill the counter in that moment. You cannot allow yeah. David Alaba to be charging into the you know half a field's worth of space and you know be given that chance to strike. I think the counter has to be shut down. And if it's with a foul and a yellow card, then you're not, you just can't lose that way because you know, given how Barcelona approached the game, that the counter attack is what's going to beat you. And you kind of have to have an approach for all right. If we're if they're in behind us, we can't let this happen. I do think there's a kind of one overarching takeaway maybe from the way Man United lost today, which is very different from how Barcelona lost today. But they both lost huge games at home against arch rivals, and I thought it was interesting. Like it's very clear to me, Man United and Barcelona are not top level teams this season, and. May not be for a little while, especially Barcelona for me. But they lost to teams that are not nation-state teams. They lost to Real Madrid and Liverpool, which are obviously very wealthy teams. But they're not next-level wealthy teams like the nation-state teams of Man City, PSG, Newcastle, as you would say. Uh, And I, I think that's interesting to me. I don't know. Like, I don't just want the nation state teams to take over. I guess Chelsea might be considered that as well. And I I feel like that's the direction we're headed in. And I kind of, 
in a weird way, I, this is going to sound weird, but like I, I kind of want Liverpool and Real Madrid to continue to be top, top teams. Because if they are, that suggests to me that it's not just going to be about the nation state teams and the nation state wealth. I think I disagree with the framing that Real Madrid is some sort of plucky underdog. I think that they've kind of put themselves and Barcelona put themselves in a predicament by spending way more than even Manchester City have on wages and on transfer fees. Like if you look at you know what their weight what the wage bill was at Barcelona, it's bigger than Manchester City. So I understand your point which is like there's a real fear here and, and the pandemic accelerated this, right? Because there's a real concern that you basically need to have owners that underwrite your shortcomings as a financial business. So I, I understand where you're coming from. I can't ever get behind a world in which Real Madrid is a plucky underdog that I have to root for. I'm sorry, I just can't. I'm not calling. I'm not calling them a plucky underdog. It's all no, relative. I, I, my I, man. I, I get. I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. They still spend a shed load of money. All right, we're going to come back in segment three and talk about domestic soccer. But for right now, we've got a great interview with Walker Zimmerman. Our guest now is the reigning MLS Defender of the Year. Walker Zimmerman's Nashville SC is in second place in the MLS East, and he captained the U.S. men's national team for one game of their recent World Cup qualifiers. Walker, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Super excited. This is the first interview I've ever done with an interviewee who is holding a baby. Fill me in. What's the story here? That's it, man. Sometimes duty calls and uh, naps go a little bit unscheduled when they wake up. So here we are. Fantastic. It is great to have an additional audience here. Thanks for doing double duty on this as well. There's a lot to talk about here, but let's start with Nashville. This team is in just its second year in MLS, got to the final eight of the playoffs last season. And as of right now, you have the fifth best record in the league this season. And it seems to me like you, you've flown under the radar a little bit. You know, what are the main reasons in your mind that you think Nashville has performed at such a high level the last two seasons? I think they did a great job, first and foremost, with building the roster and taking a look at expansion teams in the past and the importance of kind of having a good spine. It's a cliche, but when you look at the pieces that they went and acquired throughout the middle of the field and the experience not only as a professional, but MLS experience. You know, I think that it's invaluable and the club does a good job of allowing a lot of player leadership to dictate to the other guys around him who might be from abroad. Hey, this is kind of how this team sets up. These are the players that you need to watch out for. This guy's all left footed. He loves to try. You know, you just have all of these experiences that you can pass on that knowledge to your teammates. And I think Nashville did a good job of mixing both MLS experience with international experience, youth with veterans, and they, they nailed it on the draft as well. So that's a big part of it. And then certainly this second season, I think we have taken a leap, becoming more than just this team that sits back and defends and knows how to have a, a few goals conceded. But now we're starting to produce more, be a little bit more dangerous, especially in transition. And that's kind of made us a little bit more balanced. So I still remember the day in February of 2020 when you were traded from LAFC to Nashville for a lot in exchange up to, I think it was 1.25 million in general allocation money and an international roster slot. And that was a blockbuster deal. What were the circumstances of you being informed of that trade? Mm. And what was your first reaction? It was completely blindsided by it. 
I understand that teams are always trying to move pieces around and find value in different ways. So there's no hard feelings. But at the time, it was a complete bomb. I got a text from from John Thorington said, hey, you have a minute to chat. And I'm thinking, you know, oh, he wants to know about this team barbecue that we're having this next weekend about like, you know, the details on that with families and just wants to get my opinion on it. And so I call him back. You know, it's a Monday night. We just started The Bachelor, you know, so it was probably 8 p.m. Um, and so my wife, right before I called him, was like, oh, my gosh, like, what if you're getting traded? Kind of jokingly. And I was like, Sally, there's literally a 0% chance that I'm getting traded right now. So I call him and he's like, hey, this news is never going to be easy to hear. <laughs> and I started snapping at my wife. I was like, mouth to her. I'm like, I'm getting traded. Like, um, She's like, you know, immediately turns off the TV, looks at me, he's like, to where? And at that time, he's like, you know, we received an offer that we felt like we couldn't pass up and we're trading you to Nashville. And then I mouthed to my wife. I was like, Nashville? Like, you know, we were kind of like, okay, like that's, that's actually not bad. Like, okay, like we can do that. And so first reaction was, thank goodness. Uh, this is a city that like we had talked about. We knew that they were coming into the league and we were like, oh, that'd be cool for, for Nashville to have a team. And then I obviously got traded there and we immediately started you know, researching all about it and got to the city a couple of days later, immediately knew it was a place that we'd be able to call home and, you know, got traded on. So that was a Monday, got to Nashville Wednesday night and we were under contract on a house on Saturday. <laughs> and so it was a complete blur and an absolute whirlwind of experience. That's an amazing story. And it's interesting because it's a very U.S. type of story, because if this were a league, a soccer league outside the United States, they would just say, well, the player can refuse the transfer. And a lot of people outside the U.S. don't understand how it works here that like right. you just kind of get instructed and suddenly on a Monday night, your life totally changes, which is kind of wild. I'm glad that you liked the place where you were traded yes, to. That makes it that makes it a lot uh, easier to stomach when you get that kind of news. Would you have expected back then that Nashville would be a better team than LAFC these past two seasons? I would not have expected it back then, just solely off of LA. We're coming off of the record-breaking year, which New England looks like they're going to squeak by that with all their one-goal victories that they've had this season. Um, but they've had a great year. But coming off the heels of that uh, supporter shield, I thought, you know, we were primed to make a run in Champions League in L.A. The core of the team was still there. So I would have never guessed it um, just with knowing how difficult it is for expansion teams to be successful. But it's, a huge, again, huge testament to all the pieces that have kind of gotten uh, involved with Nashville and and all those things. In terms of your coach, Gary Smith, I, I find him kind of fascinating. He won an MLS Cup with Colorado yet has sort of been underrated, I would say, over the years as a coach in this league. What have you learned about Gary Smith as a coach? Well, I think he's very clear with how he wants his teams to play. And it really is starting with a defensive mindset and being solid and difficult to play against. And so a lot of teams will find that frustrating and maybe start trying to do things outside their comfort zones. And then that's where you can hurt them, whether it's transition, whether it's set pieces, but either way, you know that if you're going against the Gary Smith coach side, it's going to be tough to beat them. It's going to be tough to break them down. And so he has kind of instilled that mentality in us as, hey, we're going to be very difficult to beat. And if they're going to try and beat us, well, that's maybe when they become exposed and we can take advantage of them. So uh, it's just been very solid, definitely different style of play than what I was used to at LAFC. 
a little bit more defensive, a little bit more structured and uh, the way that we defend. But ultimately, it's a, a formula that's been really successful for us. I feel like I got to ask, what are the best parts of living in Nashville? Oh, wow. Uh, the people have been awesome. Hospitality, Southern hospitality, it's a real thing. Everyone is so friendly. So I would say the people, first and foremost, I would say the variation you can get between if you want to go out and listen to music and, and have that kind of entertainment experience, there's that. But then there's also the peace of the suburbs, uh, the ease of getting around the city. Everything seems to be 10, 15 minutes away. Um, and it's just very manageable. And so quality of life is high. Uh, mood is high here <laughs> around Nashville as we're flying. Um, and it's it's been an awesome fit for for me and the fam. I have to say, when I was there for the World Cup qualifier, I hadn't been in several years, and I was not totally prepared for the the vehicles with women on them. Yes, dancing downtown. Like, what's that about? I never. Yeah, this is this is Bachelorette capital of the world, man. This is <laughs> you see that that's just your regular Tuesday afternoon these days. <laughs> Uh, I think we're just through the busy season of of the bachelorette parties, but certainly you will have plenty of whether it's tractors, whether it's open buses, um, whether it's trucks with with pools in the back of them. You will see all sorts of things uh, kind of carting these bachelor parties around. I was not prepared for that. Had a great time though overall in my stay there. You didn't find yourself you... on the on the top of one of those or no? We'll we'll leave that for a different podcast. I'll tell you my stories. <laughs> So let's switch up a little bit to the U.S. men's national team because there's a lot going there as well. You've been a central figure for the U.S. in the World Cup qualifiers. The team's in second place behind Mexico. You're on track to qualify for the World Cup. How are you feeling about the first six qualifiers so far? Yeah, I think we feel good. I think it's, uh, like you said, we're in second place. We're in a good position. I think the narrative always gets skewed, and we're just trying to tune that out and focus on the group and focus on the team and focus on next play, next game, and, and really break it down and simplify it. Because if you get caught up in all these, oh, we have these fixtures left, we need this amount of points from this game or this game, you can't do that. You're just going to become a head case. Um, so we're trying to block that out a little bit and just focus on being in the present, being attentive for every play, and and just trying to go out there and compete. And we know the responsibility that we have. So it's a really good group. Um, I think guys have really grown over the six games because, you know, a lot of us didn't have World Cup qualifying experience. And that was a big storyline. And now we do. Now we're six games in, not quite halfway there. But I think guys have gained invaluable experience and know what it takes. And so I think we're excited for the second half of this thing. The next qualifier is USA-Mexico one of the great international sports rivalries. What does the USA-Mexico rivalry mean to you? It's huge. You know, these are the games that you want to be in. These are the games that you want to play in. You know it's going to be a different level of intensity, different level of responsibility. And ultimately, when you dream of playing the game as a kid, this is the moment. It's like, can you score a game winner against Mexico in a World Cup qualifier? Like, that's, that's it. And so... Heading into that game, I know we're really excited. It was a big summer for us. And I know that that's on the Mexico Federation's minds as well, is, hey, they beat us these past two tournaments to win trophies. Um, we got to get back at them. So there's a lot of storylines going into that game. I just know that we're excited to, to go out there and compete and bring it, bring three points on our home turf. So the last qualifying window here was an interesting one for you personally. And you weren't called up initially. 
And then not only were you called in when Tim Ream pulled out, but you played in all three games. You were the captain for one of them. What's that like to go from not being called up to being the captain? Uh, definitely pretty crazy. Probably not a very common situation, but one I, I was completely ready for and wanted to embrace that challenge. You know, Greg called me before camp and said, hey, we're not going to bring you into this. And, you know, we had a, a decent discussion just talking about it. And I was, as I would in any other call, if I weren't, weren't getting called in, it's like, well, I'm ready. I'll be ready. And sure enough, about 24 hours later, I'm getting a call again from him. And he's saying, hey, uh, we're going to bring you into camp. And I'm like, all right, let's do it. And so I got there, um, had a good session, found out I was going to be playing in the first game. And I was, I was excited. I think one of the things that Greg and I had talked about is wanting to get you know, more big game experience and playing in these qualifiers. And we both knew that the only way for me to get experience was he's going to have to put me out there. And so I was ready for that. Really excited when he told me I'd be playing and definitely. Yeah, I did play with a chip on my shoulder because I knew, you know, this is something that I want. It's something I want to be a part of and just kind of said, I want to be a guy that you know that you can count on and I want to make it hard for you to take me off the field. And so try to just put my best foot forward, bring a lot of energy, bring a lot of passion and and compete in those games that I got to play in. And definitely an honor when you talk about captaining in a World Cup qualifier and being on the road, especially um, in Panama, really disappointed we didn't get the result and didn't put our best game out there. But, you know, when you reflect on it, that's that's a really incredible accomplishment and kind of a, another childhood dream that's that's checked off the list. Kind of a random question. Do you get to keep the armband? I do. Yeah. So the captains usually get to keep the armband. They'll get to keep the little banner that you exchange or choose not to exchange with the opponent. And so that'll be an awesome. It has the date on it, has the match, uh, it says, you know, World Cup qualifier. So that's gonna be a really cool relic to uh, to keep around. That's awesome. Like I, the actual band itself, I hadn't thought about until you just mentioned that. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is such a young U.S. team that you're like an old guy at 28. Does that require you to do more inside the team from a leadership perspective? And what exactly does that entail? I don't know that it's you know I don't think it's a, a requirement that if you're older, then you thus have to lead more, but. I think certainly my personality and being around the program for so long at this point that it's a role that I love and, and relish. And I think more than anything, as I mentioned, a lot of us didn't have a lot of experience. And so it's about really providing what experience you do have and kind of instilling that in your teammates, really boosting them with confidence, letting them know that you have their back, play free. Uh, at the end of the day, just compete and you know, we all have your back and all those conversations and interactions, whether it's before the game at halftime, you know, when they come in, you're, I remember even uh, away in Honduras, you know, Mark and, and Miles came in and it's a little bit of dejection because you're down one zero. And it's like, guys, listen, like we're going to go out there. We're going to compete. You guys are doing great. Keep leading from the back and, and really just kind of refreshers of, you know, at the end of the day, go out there and do your job and don't get discouraged. Keep pushing on. And so that's certainly uh, conversations that we have. And then ultimately in training, I think just making sure that the level and the intensity and the competition is there because sometimes you aren't able to get a lot of training sessions in, in these windows, but you want to make sure that the focus is still there. And so it's a fine line of how can you try and have a session that's not overbearing to the players with intensity and fatigue, but guys need to have you know, wake up call as to what the tone is going to be for this camp. And so I think that's where the experience comes along of making sure everyone's tuned in, focused and ready to compete and balancing that with 
kind of the effort that you're putting into the session. I wanted to check in with you about this because I reported this a little bit from talking to one or two guys inside the U.S. team. You know, I've covered this team for more than 20 years. Like, it struck me that at times under under Klinsman, there were some divisions inside the U.S. team, kind of between the the German-born guys and the non-German-born guys. And then under Bruce Arena, there was an, a little bit of division between the MLS-based players and the European-based players. I don't sense that there's that either type of division inside this current team. And that's kind of what I've been told. Is that your experience? 100%. Yeah, there's there's no division. In fact, we're, we get so excited when we get to see whether it's European senior MLS guys, MLS guys, senior European guys, because we're genuinely friends. And our only time to really see each other and hang out is at these camps. And so you'll see it even with guys that are in similar positions. You know, they come in, they're excited to see each other, excited to train together, play together. And it really is a great group. And I think that is a testament to, to how Greg has kind of made that a priority since day one, was trying to integrate you know, both of these groups that seem separate because of the distance and, and how can we come together and be one team. And so that's certainly been a big part of the success of this group. Also, when you're in camp together as a team because of the covid protocols i've understood that you have like eating pods of like Pod squads, guys baby. oh yeah and those are the the three other guys you eat every meal with and that sounds interesting to allow you to get to know those three other guys really well are there other examples though of being able to actually interact in a non-soccer field sense with your teammates when you're together in camp? It, it has definitely been different and tough with COVID. This year has been a little bit better than last year, obviously, in that regard. But I think what the pod squads have done too is, you're right, you have gotten to know a lot of guys a lot better than you would have. Not that you mm-hmm. weren't interacting with them before, but now it's just a deeper level because you're right, three meals, a, well, really two meals a day because breakfast is open, but two meals a day for two weeks. I mean, you're having a lot of conversations with just those guys. So you have to kind of touch on deeper things than just what's your favorite food, what's your favorite color. And now we're getting the details out of Serginho about, you know, all, all life in Spain and his experiences at Barcelona. And, um, you know, really, I've had him back-to-back weeks or back-to-back camps. So that's been a lot of fun getting to, to mess around with him. And again, not that you wouldn't interact with, with everyone on a normal basis, but you get to go a little bit deeper with the pod squads. And we also have a... Uh, we have Travis, our, our mental coach, who does trivia. And so we have our pod squad challenges that add up points throughout the duration of camp. So I know me as a competitor, I look at Matt Turner's team. He always is a, he's a trivia nerd and he always wins. So anytime I go to camp, the first meal, I'm looking at my name tags at the table and I'm like, nope, we don't have a chance. Or I'm like, hey, this, hey, we, we got a good group this time. Like we, we, might have a, we might have a go at this thing, but... So far, no luck. He's he's running the table. I'm learning things I don't even see in the behind-the-scenes U.S. soccer videos. <laughs> so I, yeah. I appreciate this, this These window are the extra, in. extra behind-the-scenes. If you got tab- a table with Ser- Serginho Dest, I got to ask. Because like basically every player on the team tells me he is either the most interesting guy in the team or the craziest guy in the team. And I'm wondering where you stand on that. I would say interesting is, is a good word. He's very particular about the way that he does things. And so... Uh, especially when it comes to food. So he, I love to give him a little extra banner when he, he tries to ask, you know, we have all this food laid out. You can only imagine, you know, so many 
different types of diets that you're tending to and a ton of options. Like we are not going hungry at these camps yet. He'll put in a request of like, Hey, can I have like some fresh Mac and cheese? Like with the, the normal cheese, like rather than this kind of, and you're like, Sergino, come on, bro. Like, but at the end of the day, if that's, what's going to make him score left footed bangers, then be my guest. So we, we love to give him a hard time. Him and Zach Stefan had a, they were some really good conversations and going back and forth this last camp. So Again, he's great. He's really uh, he's playing well, and and it was fun being at his table for two camps in a row. You sound like you're enjoying your time with the team, and that's cool to hear. There's there is another side to your situation with the national team, and that you can be the captain, but you know, if the team qualifies, you can't be totally certain that you'll be in the 23 for Qatar. What do you need to do to make sure that you're on that plane to the World Cup if the U.S. qualifies? For me, it's it's I have to continue to perform with my club, uh, have to continue to perform when I get opportunities with the national team. And I certainly never take either of those things for granted. So every single game, it's going out there with a mindset that people are always watching and you're always having to prove something. And even when you think you've proven it, you got to keep doing it because that's just the situation that I'm in. The situation that quite frankly, we all should be in is you should all be competing against, you know, the depth of this team, which we do have every single week. And so, you know, I've, I've spoken with Greg about that and, and know that I'm a guy that has to perform every single week and, and be consistent and come up big when it, when my name's called upon. So I was happy to get the opportunity to play in these last World Cup qualifiers and, you know, we'll be ready if, if I'm called on again. But it's not trying to get ahead of myself and just stay focused, stay in the present and try and contribute any, any way I can, whether I'm on the bench or on the field. You're a guy who could certainly play in Europe if you wanted to. Is that something you want to do at some point? 100% open to it, always. You know, I'm never locked into a certain situation. I want to be able to play at the highest level. And for me, the goal is the World Cup and looking at club situations and opportunities always open for sure. I think it is it is a harder thing when you look at the frustrations of not having a passport and you look at the reality of what that does for some American players is really frustrating. And it's a process that's not perfect. But, you know, being on the wrong side of that or not having the opportunity just because of that is something that I know many players have had to deal with. So that is reality. Um, For me, I'm, again, focused, kind of similar to talking about the national team and trying to make the World Cup roster is got to just continue to focus on your club and focus on each game. And hopefully people take notice and watch. And if they approach the club, it's, it's another conversation. But in order for any of that to happen, it's, you know, controlling what you can control. And that's just the weekend, week out consistency. But Am I open to it? Absolutely. Uh, Always have been and always want to play at the highest level that I can. So definitely open to it. Last question. Do you have any good Dax McCarty stories? (laughs) Do I ever? Uh, Absolute legend. I don't know if I can tell 75% of those on air, but uh, he's been amazing. I mean, such a class act, veteran presence in our locker room. He was the, the perfect guy to bring in and captain this club in its inaugural uh, seasons and certainly has set a standard here in Nashville. So uh, I'll spare him some of the uh, stories he shares in confidence this time around. <laughs> Walker Zimmerman's Nashville SC is in second place in the MLS East. He also captained the U.S. men's national team for one game of their recent World Cup qualifiers. Walker, thank you so much for coming on the show. Good luck the rest of the MLS season. You got it. Thanks. Mm-hmm. 
Now let's start with segment three. We're going to go domestic here. Headline story, MLS, New England Revolution wins the Supporter Shield for 2021. They've been fantastic all season long. And look, they may not win the MLS Cup. I think only seven Supporter Shield winners have actually won the MLS Cup over the years. If they can do that, I think they're going to be viewed as one of the best teams in MLS history. They're certainly in a position to challenge to set a points record for the regular season here. There is a funny point that our friend Sam Stayskull noted that Bruce Arena, the New England coach, uh, said last year, quote, this whole supporter shield concept. Actually, I'm going to do this in Bruce Arena voice. <laughs> this whole supporter shield concept with an unbalanced schedule to me is one of the stupidest things I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> End quote. That's tremendous, Bruce. Thank you. It's not as good as Brian Dunsess, but I'm working on it. Um, and and obviously, here's Bruce winning the supporter shield. I hope he's celebrating it because look, that's a, a celebration of the achievements they've had. They clinch it with three games to go, hoping to break the points record. We're recording this before they play Orlando City on Sunday. What sticks out to you about what? this New England Revolution team has done this season? Well, what sticks out to me is, I, I, you know, you listen to some MLS podcasts and they talk about New England and, you know, there's an inevitability about the way that they win. But I compare it to how LAFC won the Supporters' Shield and I compare it to how Atlanta United was competing to win the Supporters' Shield before they were pipped at the last by the New York Red Bulls. But those were like culminations of these incredible projects, right? There were great crowds. There were star players. It was this incredible model working. Whereas I think New England has not gotten nearly the hype that they deserve, but I almost don't know how to manufacture it. When it's not like the stadium sells out. It's not a great stadium to watch on television. They're, like the hype machine for New England almost seems like it's impossible to build. I want to be more excited about the fact that there could be a new MLS points record. This could be the greatest team in history, but you know, Carlos Hill as their star player is incredible. He's a great player. I just don't I, I just don't think of him as this massive star. They have three good designated players. They're one of the few MLS teams that has three good you know designated players. They've nailed their signings. Adam Buxa is probably going to get sold back to Europe because he came from from Poland and he's done well here in MLS. He's getting Poland international caps. I think he scored in the most recent international break. Buxa might go back to Europe for more than New England paid. That could be a good bit of business. Gustavo Bo has come in, been successful since arriving from Tijuana. They built, you know, Bruce knows how to work every mechanism that there is in MLS and the draft and the free agent market and bringing MLS veterans. They can rotate five and six guys and still be an incredibly strong team as they have been throughout the season. And yet, it's not the same. It didn't feel the same as Atlanta and LAFC, where we just wanted to talk about them every week and how great they are. It just doesn't feel the same. And I don't know why. I wish I could manufacture that. I also wish that there was just an overall more excitement about the supporter shield, that it felt like, you right. know, the American soccer media stands still as it does for MLS Cup final when the supporter shield gets determined. But the incentive structure in the league is it's that goes to who wins MLS Cup. I wish the supporter shield drew more hype, and I wish New England did too because they deserve it. I want to say something about Bruce Arena because there have been so many new fans added to American soccer and the U.S. men's national team in the last five to ten years who don't have a full understanding of Bruce Arena's career record. And yes, he coached the team in 2017 that failed to qualify for a World Cup. He deserved a ton of criticism for that. 
and he got it. But this guy is one of the greatest coaches we've ever had in the United States in this sport. And you can make a pretty good argument that he's the best on the men's side. And I think it's kind of cool that at 70 years old, Bruce Arena showed again this season how good of a coach he is and also how good of a player personnel guy he is because he does both and does them very well. He built this New England Revolution team, did it in a lot of different ways. And yes, he's old school and it's frustrating that he doesn't like analytics and he's cranky and whatever, but there's a reason this guy's had so much success in his career. He knows how to build teams. He did it at Virginia, won five NCAA titles. He did it at DC United, literally won the first MLS Cup there ever was. DC wins the first two years, three out of the first four. I know by the, by the third one, he was gone for the US team, but he built that team to a large extent with Kevin Payne. And he just continued LA Galaxy, New England Revolution. I'm, I'm kind of tired now of hearing negativity about Bruce Arena because this guy is an amazing coach. And I, I think the people who follow this sport, who followed it for a long time in the United States, get it. Not everyone will. And I get the frustration about the World Cup situation, but just an amazing job this year. And, and they're probably going to sell other guys too, right? Tajan Buchanan is already mm -hmm. set to go. Uh, Matt Turner could very well go, especially because yeah. he's got a Lithuanian passport and is a terrific goalkeeper. Other guys might go too, but like what this this team has done is very impressive, even if they fall flat on their face in the playoffs, which I don't expect to happen. And if they can win the title, the MLS Cup, then they're, they're going to be historic. Yeah, they're going to be one of the best teams of all time. And to further your point about Bruce's overall legacy, he's also the only coach, yes, they missed the World Cup under his tutelage, which is not entirely his fault because he takes over after Jurgen Klinsmann starting that campaign appallingly. But also, he's the first and only coach in the modern era to take the U.S. into a World Cup quarterfinal as well. And they yeah. could have won that quarterfinal. Not for if, if they had VAR, they could have won that quarterfinal. And so, I agree. I think this is a you know I, I saw New England in person when they came to Inter Miami and beat them by five goals to nil. And you just under like this guy knows how to organize a team in the American game. And the American game is different than every other league in the world. Bruce knows how to work it. I, I call him Bruce. Arena knows how to work it better than any American coach, better than any coach, period. And if he culminates it with a sixth title, gets a supporter shield here with the points record, that only further cements, you know, obviously Siggy Schmidt passed away, and so they named the coach of the year after him. That's really Bruce Arena's award. Like, he is the defining coach, certainly of MLS, and as you said, probably, if not all of American soccer in this generation. By the way, totally tangentially, I appreciate how you always get one Britishism in every podcast. <laughs> Pipped! Pipped, Chris! <laughs> Fantastic! Fan-freaking-tastic. <laughs> couple other quick things in MLS. Uh, crazy situation in the Seattle-Kansas City game, won by Kansas City, and... You had Tim Malia not get sent off after pulling off this total WWE move that got recognized by The Rock <laughs> on Twitter, of all things. And MLS, instead of like condemning it, celebrates The Rock tweeting about it. Yeah. I mean, listen, 
If you can get engagement, get it any way that you can. Uh, the MLS put it out on Twitter and on Instagram. And look, it was funny. I was commentating the game for, for Univision. Uh, Seattle Sounders hosting Sporting Kansas City. There's a cross that comes in. Christian Roldan does the thing where he tries to crowd the goalkeeper. And he probably took it one step too far. And so it goes into Tamelia. And Tamelia does the rock bottom, which is the rock's <laughs> signature move. Other than the people's elbow, of course. And so, you know this, Grant. I don't need to explain this to you. And so, uh, so you know, so The Rock tweets about it. And it's like, yeah, this was probably the vital moment of the weekend. If you're MLS, like, yeah, get in on the fun. And it was fun, right? Like, thankfully, Christian Roldan didn't get hurt. Timelia should have been sent off, which we're talking about in the aftermath. Like, yeah, you know, maybe the referee should have sent him off. And if there's a thing that looks bad, it is, the, you know, the officiating in MLS. But... It was a really funny moment. And what was actually a very intense game, like, yeah, I, I, I thought it was uproariously funny. Ramsey Sandoval, my, my, my co-commentator, and I were kind of going back and forth making wrestling jokes. We couldn't stop talking about it for 15 minutes. And uh, in the end, as you said, Sporting Kansas City wins a really big game. They win away at Seattle for a second time this year. They're three points off the top of the Western Conference and a first-round bye in the MLS Cup playoffs. So... It was kind of a perfect MLS moment. So you don't like my poo-pooing of MLS celebrating this? I mean, <laughs> let's have some fun. Let's just have fun. Like, I was having fun on the broadcast. Why not? Like, that was, you know, thankfully no one, no one was harmed in the making of this viral video. And so it's fine. I do want to mention, though, before we sign off, Carly Lloyd uh, playing her final U.S. Uh, games uh, this week on Tuesday against South Korea. Uh, I'm going to try and get Carly as an interview guest on this show. She's been crazy busy lately, so I understand why she hasn't had time. But, like, uh, she's going to be finishing up with Gotham uh, as well. And and just would like to get her on to talk about, you know, her career. Um, it's an amazing career. Yeah. And I, I've covered her going back to, well, before 2007 even. And it, it's... Yeah, she's always going to have 2015 and, and that World Cup and the hat trick and the final and the goal for midfield. But um, just a legendary player uh, who has had an approach that I think is intense and has gotten her criticism at times over the years. But her way has worked uh, pretty darn well. So just want to mention that I don't think that U.S. games themselves this week are that interesting. Uh, they're friendlies. It is what it is, but the fact that it's the end of Carly Lloyd's career is something. Agreed, and I think she's probably, you know, given the sports place in this country and how good the women's national team has been during the time that she's been in the national team, like, deserves, her career should be remembered as one of the greatest in the history of the national team. I heard at halftime, she was on with the uh, broadcast crew at Minnesota United, because they're, I think they're playing in Minnesota, and the number of caps, it was like, she's like 320 caps. That's insane. <laughs> the number of times that she's played for the team, as you mentioned, the meaningful goals. Like, we should go back, go through the years and remember the London 2012 Olympics she played a huge role in. You know, like these massive tournaments, these massive games, and it's kind of been remarkable in her longevity. Like, we've kind of been talking a lot about with the women's national team, given how it went during the summer in the Olympics, about phasing out this generation. It's more about, all right, we need to move on from Carly Lloyd. But in other countries, we, you know, they'd hail their legends, right? They're treated as heroes. Like, Carly Lloyd should be a hero among the women's national team supporters for how for what she's done. And, yeah, people can criticize her for whatever or say that she might have been detrimental. But that, that's nonsense. Like, for she put all of that to bed in that World Cup final in 2015. Like, the way that 
legends are talked about in other countries where, like, you know, anytime someone passes away from the 1966 World Cup England winning team, it's a whole, they get a whole day, right, of like, hey, tell us your stories about Sir Jeff Hurst and tell us your stories about whoever. Like, in some ways, the current crop of women's national team players should be treated that way for generations to come. All right, let's wrap it up. Thanks so much, Chris. Always a good conversation. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Walker Zimmerman, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my new newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style features and on-location stories for every U.S. Men's World Cup qualifier. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your support with that. See you next time.